uh, Makita here, and welcome to Urban Ambling. Uh, I think I probably meant to give each of these podcasts a title, so I think the best title for this is Sydney's Connection to the South Seas. This is a story about a building that dates back to 1900, and it's also a story where we'll touch on the lives of the two men who were responsible for the building of this wonderful structure. And looking at the structure as we will, you can realise that they obviously did very well in business to be able to create this wonderful uh, building. They were two men, uh, quite extraordinarily, who came to Australia as immigrants, both of them from Scotland. Burns, Mr Burns, arrived at the age of 16 and uh, Mr Philp arrived with his family as a boy of 11. Burns, at 16, having come all that way by himself, took himself off to Western Queensland to work as a jackaroo. Uh, Philp, for his part, uh, when he finished school, which his schooling, which was in Brisbane, worked uh, initially for a Brisbane shipping company, but after a shortish period, he went up to Townsville to take his chances up there, and it was there that he met Burns, and the two of them formed a partnership, obviously, as Burns Philp in Townsville in 1876. And their business was uh, to work as shipping agents and merchants uh, operating uh, extensively throughout the South Pacific. The pursuit of this story takes us back to Bridge Street and to the Burns Philp, not surprising, building. Uh, on the southern side of Bridge Street, and it's situated between George and Pitt Streets. So let's start again by standing at the corner of George and Pitt Street and once again just taking in that marvellous view down Bridge Street and then up the long climb to Macquarie Street. Someone called uh, Macklehose, uh, M-A-C-L-E-H-O-S-E, and I should confess I have no idea who Mr McElhose was, but in any event he's reported in 1838 to have predicted that Bridge Street will undoubtedly be the finest street in Sydney. I must say for my part I tend to agree that it is that street, although it does have competition obviously from Macquarie Street and Martin Place. Others may disagree, but I think he's probably right. The other thing just to remember as you're standing there looking down Bridge Street towards Pitt Street, which is at the bottom of the small run down, that you're looking almost exactly at where the tank stream flowed. And the other interesting thing to just reflect on is as you're looking down there, in the early years of European settlement, ships would have been able, on the right tide obviously, to come right up and moor quite close to Bridge Street. The best way to look at the building is to look at it from the, the northern or harbour side of Bridge Street. So let's cross over at the, the lights and go down, and it's only about 50 metres or so, and just stand and take the time to just really look at the, uh, the building. Um, as I said, it was built uh, over the years 1899 and 1900. 
Now, it's been the subject of much comment, and it has, I think, heritage orders on it, unsurprising. Uh, but some of the people learned in these matters have described the architectural style of the building in various ways. And here's some examples. Federation, Romanesque, Late Victorian, Gothic, Neo-Romanesque, and probably not surprisingly, given the origins of the two men with flashes of Scots baronial or Scottish baronial. And uh, I must say, I think that's certainly something I can see in the building. I'm not too sure and not qualified to comment on all the other things, but I must say that if you read that description without seeing the building, you'd probably think it must be the most extraordinary mishmash. But it's not. I think it's fair to say that it's a very uh, beautiful, almost in a way a calming building because its scale is something we can relate to. It's only three or four storeys high. It's got beautiful symmetry, although there is, of course, to the west, the arch, which gives into a laneway that runs down to the back. But as I say, it's it's worthwhile to just take time to look at it and look at the detail. And in particular, have a look at the wonderful stone uh, parapet, crest, whatever term you want to use, uh, above the, uh, the main door. And if you look at the flags, there's wonderful detail carved into uh, those flags. And if you look a bit above the flags, you'll see towards the top some thistles that have been added in on either side. Again, not surprisingly, given that they were uh, men of uh, Scottish origin. And then, of course, there's the columns uh, and uh, also, of course, the two marvellous bay windows. And it's worthwhile just standing there and, for want of a better phrase, drinking it all in. Uh, now, people are probably going to think you're a bit weird, sort of staring earnestly over the street, but I think it's worthwhile. And I don't think it's uh, stretching things too far to say that it is really a joy to behold. One thing that uh, crops up when you start slowing down and looking at things a bit more and just making some inquiries, you find that things can lead off in all the most extraordinary ways. And so it is with the Burns Filt Building, because if you do a bit of research into it, you'll see that uh, the wonderful sandstone uh, with which the facade is constructed is in fact known, uh, if you're a connoisseur of these things, as purgatory sandstone. Now that's an extraordinary name, and I'll come back to explain a little about that shortly. But before we do that, can I just suggest we go back up to the lights, cross over, walk down on the southern side and actually go into the main entrance uh, of the building under that wonderful arch uh, sculpture, as I said. Uh, one difficulty with it now is a mezzanine was put in in the 1960s, so one doesn't gain a sense of the beautiful scale of the building from standing in the foyer. You can, though, look in through a glass door into one of the offices towards George Street and you can there see the full height that would have been uh, in on the ground floor uh, in the time it was built. It's worth having a walk around the foyer. There's wonderful cedar joinery, doors, 
skirtings, architraves and the like. Also take the time to stop and look at the wonderful marble honour boards. Uh, they're a joy to behold in themselves and don't, particularly don't miss the wonderful inlay plates at the bottom. But just look at the, the, the places that are specified from where people who fought and people who died came and it gives you a sense of what the extraordinary scope of this business was throughout Australia and the Pacific at the time of the, uh, the First World War. Don't miss either a couple of things. On the glass doors leading into that office on the George Street side that I just mentioned, just have a look at the wonderful thistles, which are probably sandblasted is the best way of describing it, into the glass. The other thing to do is to have a look at the display cabinets that are there because they've got some wonderful little cameo things from the company's heyday. And one of those is a travel poster from 1914. And the company, as well as doing the things I've mentioned, also was the first company to ever offer tourism to New Guinea. And they started that as early as 1884. And it was in 1914, the date which I just mentioned, that they set up a formal tourism department and began offering tours to other islands, including Norfolk Island and Lord Howe Islands. So it is a place to get a real sense of what the, uh, the company did. So I'll just come back to this interesting sideline about Purgatory Sandstone. Now, I appreciate in doing this, some people will take the view that I seem like I'm wandering off the point. And to some extent, that's uh, probably true. And it's something I happen to be uh, remarkably good at. But it is an example of how one little detail there leads to other interesting lines of inquiries. But I will remind myself before I just deal with this fairly briefly, uh, that what I do should be seen as a controlled detour rather than a whimsical digression. Uh, I'll leave it to you to decide which it is, but I'll try to be as controlled as I can. Uh, Purgatory Sandstone is also known as Piermont Yellow Block Sandstone, and it was simply because at those times it was quarried in Piermont. It was a particularly good sandstone as it was hard, it had excellent texture and colour, and it was very suitable for the carving of sculptures and finely carved details. And as I mentioned just a moment ago, you can see that in the wonderful detail on those flags on the carving above the main door. And just out of interest, the statues on the Lands Department building, which I mentioned last time, about 10 of those were sculptured out of this same Piermont yellow block sandstone. And that was by a man called William Priestley Mackintosh. Now, I think there's a separate podcast uh, about him, which we'll get to in due course. But can I just mention that when you happen to be down near the Queen Victoria building, which for those of you who are tourists is in George Street between Market Street and the Town Hall. There are wonderful sculptures and statues above each of the doors in the middle of the building, one giving egress from York Street or to York Street, the other to George Street. 
and they're certainly worth looking at those. And they are again this same Piedmont yellow block sandstone. As I said, the quarries uh, were in Piedmont, and during the latter part of the uh, 19th century, between 1850 and about 1900, there were in fact 50 quarries operating in Piedmont. One of the principal quarry masters was a man called Charles Saunders, who was the licensee of, perhaps not surprisingly, the Quarryman's Arms. Now, his quarries were named Paradise, Purgatory and Hellhole, and they in fact were given those names by the Scottish quarrymen who worked there uh, during those years. And you'll quickly gather that Paradise was obviously easy to work and it was a bit of competition between purgatory and hellhole as to which was the worst. If you're interested to have a wander to get a sense of where they were, uh, the purgatory quarry was on the block which would now be bounded by uh, Wattle, Quarry, Jones and Fig Street in Piedmont. And on that site now is what was once one of the wonderful old wool stores which were in that area of the town. So it was from that purgatory quarry that the sandstone that you're looking at, uh, or have been looking at, was uh, obtained. And can I just mention, as an aside, and this may fit into the category of a whimsical digression, uh, the workers on that site, through their union, were the first to win the eight-hour working day, which they won in 1855, which would have been quite an achievement at that time. So let's turn to just briefly mention a few things about these two extraordinary men. James Burns, later Sir James Byrne, lived in fact to the age of uh, 77, dying in August of 1923. He arrived in Australia in 1862 from Scotland, as I mentioned in the beginning, at the age of 16. He went off to Queensland, as I also mentioned, as a jackaroo, and uh, he was there for about three years. By the age of 19, he'd founded a Brisbane store, which was called Burns and Scott. He did this with his brother. They then proceeded to open three other stores in regional centres, including Gympie in Queensland. Uh, he sold out uh, of the business uh, and went back to Scotland uh, for a few years. But by 1871, Burns had returned to Australia and went up to Townsville, where he set up a trading company. It was, of course, there that he met uh, Robert, later Sir Robert Phil, uh, and as I mentioned in the beginning, they became partners. As we said in the beginning, uh, they obviously did well. You only have to look at that wonderful building to see that. And uh, he was also a director of numerous other companies, including on the board of the AMP, which was very grand in those days. He also served for a time on the Legislative Council of New South Wales. He was a very generous man, uh, for he helped set up a scheme during World War I to ensure enlisted men who had dependents, and he gave £2,000 a year from his own pocket throughout the course of the war to aid that 
insurance scheme, which obviously provided for the defendants if the man of the house, the father, uh, did not return from the war. Uh, from about 1850s, uh, Byrne lived in a property that he called Gowan Bray, G-O-W-A-N-B-R-A-E, uh, which is on the western side of Pennant Hills Road in North Parramatta and is now part of the King's School's ground. Uh, whilst living there, he was instrumental in setting up the Presbyterian Homes for Children, and these later became the Burnside Homes. Uh, and in addition to providing financial assistance, he also gave land for the purpose of building the homes, which was extraordinarily generous. And those of you who have lived in Sydney for a long time will probably remember the Burnside Homes, uh, which are on the western side, generally western side of Pennant Hills Road as you head down through North Parramatta. So it, as you'll see from that very brief sketch, he was uh, a man who had an amazing career for a man who arrived in Australia by himself at the age of 16. Uh, he was buried uh, uh, in 1923 on his property. So Robert Philp was a very interesting character. He, he was probably very lucky that he met Burns because it emerged fairly quickly that he was a person given to all sorts of speculative uh, investments and uh, he certainly didn't enjoy the uh, great financial returns uh, that Burns did, although Burns obviously was much better than hanging on to his money. Uh, Sir Robert Philp had born, was born in Glasgow on the 28th of December 1851 and as I said in the beginning, he arrived in Australia with his parents and family in 1862. His father pursued various business interests. After he left school, he initially worked for a shipping company in Brisbane, and then, as I said in the in introduction, he went to Townsville, where he became a junior partner with James Burns. As I mentioned, he was described as a prolific speculator, and I'm afraid many of these speculations weren't, didn't end too happily and he got into very significant financial difficulties during the 1890s. And this, of course, was a period when there was also a general recession throughout Australia. Uh, these difficulties led to him having to sell his shares in Burns, Fulp & Co in 1893. So you will see that really by the time the building was built, he was out of it, and it was really Burns who was carrying it on. But... Although he was unsuccessful to some extent in business, although obviously very good at choosing his partners, he pursued a quite successful political career in Queensland, entering the Queensland Parliament in 1886 as the member for Musgrave. Politics in those days were very turbulent indeed because there weren't any strict political parties because it was obviously before the foundation of either uh, the Labor Party or well before the foundation of the Liberal Party. So there were always different groups of people who'd come together on certain issues but then decide they'd go off somewhere else on other issues. So one never quite knew what was going to happen from one day to the other, although some people could say it hasn't been much different around here for 10 years. But anyway, but he did. He survived, he persevered, and he served two shortish terms as Premier of Queensland. He became the 15th Premier of Queensland when he was in office from the 7th, I'm sorry, from the 1st of December 1894 
to the 7th of December of that year and then again continued through after a short gap until the 1st of February 2001. Uh, there, of course, as again, all these changing allegiances, but he served again as Premier from the 19th of November 2007 till the 18th of February 2008. He was also interested in general civic matters, and whilst he doesn't appear to have been the philanthropist, I'll get it out soon, uh, that Burns was, he participated in the foundation of the University of Queensland in 1912 and was a, a member of the first Senate of that university. Philp died at 71, which wasn't a bad innings in those days, and that was on the 17th of June, 1922. He's buried in the Tu Wong Cemetery, which is just a little to the west of the CBD of Brisbane. So that's a, a brief sketch uh, about the two men, the Burns and the Philp, but hopefully you could pursue that through yourself. Uh, I think that's getting long enough, but can I just add a couple of things? When you leave the foyer of the building, it's worth just walking down on that southern uh, side of Bridge Street to the building on the next corner, which is on the corner of Bridge Street and Tank Stream Way, and that is 17 to 19 Bridge Street. And that's a building that was built in 1925, a Scottish house. Uh, and whilst it's not in the class of the Burnsfield building, it's still a very attractive building. And it's worth going into the foyer because there's some very interesting markings showing the course of the tank stream. And there are also a couple of interesting exhibits that are, are certainly worth having a look at. At the time of recording this, uh, we're obviously in uh, the very unusual times caused by the pandemic. And I came across a, a quote the other day, which I thought might be worth passing on in these rather odd times where we're all spending uh, a lot of time at home. And it's a quote from Cicero, the Roman philosopher uh, who lived in the first century BC. And what he said is, if you have your library and your garden, you need nothing else. Now, not all of us will have a library, not all of us will have access to a garden, but it could equally be a, applied to being, if you have a book and a quiet corner where you can browse through it, then you need nothing else. Thank you. I, I hope that's of some use to you. Stay well, uh, stay happy in these difficult times and Whilst obeying all the regulations we seem to have, I hope you get a chance to have a bit of an amble and a bit of a look around. So until next time, good luck and cheerio.